Welcome to ArcNet Sessions, episode 26. This weekend, we'll be sharing a conversation I had in Lima, Peru with architect and friend Sebastian Bravo. Sebastian shares his stories about studying architecture during a time of terrorism, starting work as an architect in a new Lima, modernism's culturally unifying role in Lima, and his recent venture into the world of alcohol. Before we start the show, I'd like to thank this week's sponsor, Alucabond. I have Christina Saunders, Applications Engineer at Alucabond, on the line with me. Christina, can you tell us a little about what you do at Alucabond? As the Applications Engineer, my primary function is to work with the architects, designers, specifiers, and our fabricators to basically ensure that Alucabond is utilized properly on, um, on their projects. And that encompasses three basic roles. One is that I manage the code compliance and certification program. Um, secondly, I'm involved with the application testing for product development and manufacturing process improvements. And third, basically, I, I work to provide the engineering systems for our architectural sales group and work with business development and marketing resources to develop and assess the growth opportunities here at Alucapond. Can you talk about what you're working on right now? Absolutely. We are looking to see how the new code changes will affect our, our products regarding the um, International Building Code and um, the NFPA, which is the National Fire Protection Association. We are looking at developing some new products and educational pieces for companies, as well as working with um, industry associations such as the NCA, the Metal Construction Association. So we're, we're, we're fairly active. So what makes a Lucabon Plus special? What makes the Lucabon Plus special? Lucabon Plus is a fire retardant core material. And as such, it really gives a lot of flexibility to the architects and the building owners uh, when they're designing their, their structures. There's a fire performance that is very specific that we would have to conform to. And the Elucabon Plus material offers that, that flexibility and performance on a, a building owner's project. All right. Thanks, Christina. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna, Amelia, and Ken. How's everyone's week? Good. Excellent. Ooh, Good. excellent. Ken, why don't you lead the parade here? <laughs> what distinguishes a weekend from excellent and good? Well, I've made a big decision that I am uh, throwing my hat into the ring, and I'm going to run against Hillary Clinton. Oh, oh, that's awesome. You heard it first. We've all been suspecting that announcement, and it's good to finally get the confirmation. Can I be your campaign manager, please? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's probably Linda's job. Sorry. Okay. My first thought was how to make the letter K, because both of your, your first name and your last name have K in them, how to make that have a forward facing arrow or a red arrow just going infinitely into the future or something to kind of rival Hillary's forward motion, red and blue logo on her H. Right. But some of the criticism around her arrow is pointing to the right. Exactly. So my arrow would be pointing to the left. Exactly. And that's left of center. It's such a problem, though, with our ideas of orientation <laughs> having that to do with the anti-progress. It's such a limited paradigm. Isn't Hebrew read from right to left, though? <laughs> I believe so. So, yeah, we're going to move to the left. That's always choose the left side. Wow. Is that the real reason why your weekend was excellent, Ken? 
Or do you have some other reason? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm nearly fully healed and I'm almost done with being sick and uh, finishing up uh, revising some drawings for some friends so they can build their project. And yeah, so things are going pretty well. And record store day was Saturday. So I got to see a little bit of that. Oh, cool. So that groin's doing good? Groin check. Groin check. Yeah, I can actually lift my leg and not have any pain. So I nice. think I'm back. I'm back in the uh, jujitsu mode tomorrow. Excellent. Great. Yeah. Good to hear. Well, Ken and I are sort of online sharing workout stories because I'm trying to get into my fighting weight, down to my fighting weight for the AIA National Conference. So I've been doing this 21-day fix workout and it is kicking my butt. It's exhausting. What does it involve? What's uh, so heavy about it? It's only 30 minutes a day and then a, a fairly strict diet, but it's 30 minutes of intensity every day. And it, I, like my leg muscles are so, I, I feel crippled. Like I can hardly stand up. It's yeah, it's hard. It's rough. I think Ken and I are going to arm wrestle when we get there, right? <laughs> Certainly. We're uh, opening it up for bets right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll start drinking. And like after each drink, we'll have an arm wrestle and we'll see who can keep going. That's like when it gets interesting. Be like an AIA National Convention Fight Club. Exactly. That's as soon as the seminars are over, everyone just goes, you know, underground, underneath the convention center to duke it out. Sounds good. <laughs> that, I, I mean, it sounds appropriate. Well, I hear Justin Chubot is going to be there. Uh, that's Donna's exactly out. what I was just thinking. Oh, that's why you're getting in shape, Donna. <laughs> I need to kick some ass. But yes. No, 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 no. I'm just getting prepped for the convention. Yeah, it's coming up. It's coming up very soon. A couple of weeks. Yeah. Amelia, have you found your pantsuit? I am scouring eBay and Goodwill stores far and wide looking for the appropriate pantsuit for this scenario. The stranger fact is that I already have a pantsuit that I was gifted when I first became, after I graduated from college as like a good faith employment gift. It's a very unoffensive pantsuit. However, it is still a pantsuit. And so I think I think the opportunity with the pantsuit is to just go like as full either maybe... I'm trying to think of like a good fashion brand that would be a good uh, analogy for what I'm trying to say, but just like loud and obnoxious, like a fabric or a pattern that is just like completely ridiculous and would like make every other architect kind of gag a bit, but in a good way. <laughs> That's my goal. That's my ideal pantsuit. Nice. So like Paisley, something like that. There will be a lot of black at the convention. So yeah, go loud. Yeah. That would be the way to go. It'll be an easy way for people to find the Arcanex sessions. Exactly. That's right. Go talk to that person who clearly <laughs> dresses like they're on the radio. <laughs> I'm excited. I have to ask, was this a gift from your parents? Like a congratulations on having a job gift? Yes, it was. And it was a pantsuit because, you know, my mom is a first generation feminist. So that was, or a first wave feminist, excuse me. That was important. But it's just like, you know, it's almost too, it's too formal. I need something more like sassy and something that distinguishes me from the from the act, from actually not being an architect, I think that would be appropriate. I mean, I own three pantsuits, so you know, I I actually wear them frequently because it's so easy to wear a suit. I love wearing a suit; it's just easy. You don't have to think. But yeah, well, Paul knows I usually show up to the office wearing a tuxedo, so <laughs> this would exactly. be a little bit of a dress down. Have you found your attire, Paul, for the convention? I haven't even given it any thought. Maybe I'll just uh, wear a onesie. Be comfortable. You know, they make onesies that look like suits, like the Barat suit that. Didn't he, didn't Barat oh, in that movie yes. wear that, that like tankini thing? Oh yeah. No, no, that's not a onesie. A onesie is like, you know, what, what babies wear. It's just a one piece, like cover, oh, okay. cover your feet, cover your, like, I mean, the, it's, the, it's the ultimate in comfort. I mean, it would be perfect for airplane travel. Definitely. Yeah. There's no metal. <laughs> yeah, it would be. It's comfortable. Yeah. No yeah. belt to take off. Yeah. You can just take it off and get all that airplane seat gunk off your body as soon as you get to the hotel. <laughs> there is a startup that 
markets onesies that look like suits, like with some type of like the stitching and the fabric and the um, pattern on the onesie makes it look like you're wearing real clothing. And they're marketing it towards like Silicon Valley bros who just have no time to apparently to do anything like buy separate pieces of clothing or or put them on, I guess. Wow. Yeah. So we've reached that point. It's no longer a joke. It's now reality. So Paul, you were just around a bunch of architecture types, right? This weekend? Yeah. I just went to Dallas for a little brainstorming weekend with the ACSA and some of their board members, educators at schools around the country. And uh, it was pretty enlightening just uh, hearing about the state of architectural education, some of the struggles that the schools are, are facing right now, some of the struggles that I think the industry in general is facing. Specifically, you know, they've they shared some some findings with some research that they've done. And there seems to be a real misconception among prospective students, high school students, even older prospective students, parents about what the architecture industry really is and what it takes to become an architect. I was surprised to hear so many comments from some of the people at the in the admissions departments at different schools about how students decided not to go into architecture even though they really wanted to because of things like that they couldn't draw a straight line or that they weren't good enough at math. And I think, you know, everybody that has been through architecture school knows that those are definitely not two prerequisites to become an architect. So, you know, it was interesting. And it was also another interesting fact that was brought up was that a lot of students that wanted to go into architecture but ended up declining a uh, an accepted application did so because they felt that studying architecture would limit their options for what careers to go in. They, they felt that if they were going to study architecture, they had to become an architect. And, you know, for anybody that's uh, listened to the podcast and, and looked at, you know, our website at the Working Out of the Box series, it's far from, far from true. Yeah. Or if they're focusing too much on statistics that show really poor employment statistics of architects in past histories or like show how difficult it is or annual salaries or things like that. There's many ways to be easily disincentivized from pursuing it without really understanding how many different paths can be pursued with that groundwork. Yeah, I mean, it was generally assumed that that uh, perception that an architecture education can only lead to an architecture career was that the educators felt that students thought that that was the only thing that they were going to be trained for. But I was thinking that, you know, I think some people might just be thinking that because of the the time and the financial investment into studying architecture, that they feel a responsibility to become an architect. So their, their options are limited due to that investment that they've made. So I don't know. But you know, some of these things are concerning because I think that the architecture industry could potentially be turning away some of tomorrow's leaders in the field because of these misconceptions. I have so much to say about this. The nice thing is we were just talking about the the convention and my talk at the national convention talks a lot about this, about how we have all these people that get architecture degrees and then they end up doing something entirely different, you know, filmmaking or urban design work or all kinds of related fields. And there's a real sense that um, the architecture discipline is turning our backs on those people and saying, oh, well, you're not really an architect, so therefore you can't claim our name. You can't call yourself an architect because you're not registered. I think this is all in turmoil. I think it's all changing very quickly. I mean, I th my talk at the AIA National is going to be about people like many people. I, I include a few people we've had on the podcast, Elizabeth Timmy and Kelly Miano, who went to architecture school, but are doing other things now and are doing amazing work. And like you said, Paul, they're being leaders, you know, they're being leaders in society 
They're not designing buildings, but they're doing a whole lot of the things that architecture relates to. And I think we as a, you know, I'm one of the older people in the profession. I think we have to embrace these youngsters, young young people in the field and embrace the places where they do put their attention and the things they do think about in architectural terms. Definitely. And I mean, I don't know how the industry can turn that around and make the public more aware of or more more accepting and open to to people that want to pursue that direction. It's it's not an easy problem to solve. Another interesting thing that that was brought up during this meeting was that was that there's been a, a big drop in in applications and enrollment at architecture schools and that's kind of concerning. I mean, especially from our perspective at Arconnect because we're seeing a real difficult time right now for firms to find qualified architects. So there does not seem to be the same problem that we had a few years ago where there was too many architects. Right now, it seems to be quite the opposite. Which is kind of strange, right? When I was uh, in high school, I didn't pursue architecture right after high school. And part of the reason I didn't pursue architecture right after high school is that I was told uh, incessantly that you had to be good at math. I know. I know. It's so frustrating. So I was better in my art classes and I didn't take physics in, in high school. I didn't take chemistry. I didn't I took algebra, but it, that scared me away from architecture uh, for a few years. And how I got into NJIT was actually through the civil engineering program. Um, and then I found that program too easy and I transferred into architecture. But I tell people, in fact, I have a, there's a student in my office right now who is a um, high school student and she's kind of, she's being mentored by one of the architects in the office. And I told her, I said, you know, I told her exactly what I just told you. I said, I was told by various um, architects and various school teachers that I need to be good at math. That's one path. It's not the only path. I said, I'm, I happen to like art. If you like to read, if you're into literature, if you're into painting, I said, that's another way into architecture. So that language is still being used to uh, kind of push people away from the profession. It's kind of strange to hear at this point. I feel like I wasted a year of my life with that advice because I also was under the impression that I had to be good at math. And I was really good at math. I mean, I won, you know, provincial math awards in high school, but I felt like I wanted to be a really great architect. So I thought, that meant I needed to be even better at math. So I took an entire year of calculus and advanced math courses at the University of Victoria where I grew up just to better prepare myself. And then, you know, and then once I was in architecture school, I mean, at SIAR, we literally weren't even allowed to take a calculator in the school. Our, our uh, structures <laughs> exams were essay questions, you know, based, you know, theoretical essay questions that involved absolutely no understanding of, of math. I mean, this was, you know, the early levels. I don't know. Um, I can't, I'm not speaking about the, the more upper level structures courses, but that's probably the only part of my education that I regretted was spending that year becoming better at something I thought I had to be better at. When you're talking to some of these admissions people, are they speaking specifically about schools of architecture or colleges of design? Are they talking about enrollment in architecture per se or into the design colleges? This weekend in Dallas was specifically about architecture departments. There were representatives from NGIT, Carnegie Mellon, University of Wisconsin. What about Syracuse? Not Syracuse. But these schools had, you know, uh, departments of design where architecture was sub-department of that. And there were only representatives from the architecture programs. So they weren't speaking on behalf of any other departments or fields. It just seems to me that when you're a subset of a larger department, then it's, you're a subset. When I was at NJIT, it was a school of architecture. It wasn't a college of design. It was a school of architecture. So you knew what this college was 
and you knew where to go and you knew that's the only school in the state of New Jersey um, that offered a BARC. And that was where you went for architecture. Now they're the College of Design. And I'm wondering if those kinds of things that are happening in schools, it happens here at the University of Minnesota, it happens at NJIT, when they create colleges of design, on the one hand, it might seem like a great idea because you have this interdisciplinary kind of thing happening. But if you're a subset of a larger design program, then how do people see you? I just wonder if that is part of the problem, is that they're not really seen as like a you know, school of architecture. In terms of this problem of the reduced enrollment and, um, and applications, I don't think it has anything to do with that because it's, it's a nationwide trend across all the schools regarding how sub departments are perceived. I have no idea. Um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be able to comment on that. So I'll put a link in the show notes. There was just a um, article in our local business journal about enrollment at Ball State University, our local, our state's architecture university or architecture school. And then the end of the article went into more information sort of generally about demographics in architecture schools across the country. And of course, once again, our friend Leanne has amazing graphics at the ACSA Atlas Project that that look at architecture school demographics across the country and all kinds of ways that are amazing. But it, it seems to me, I, I mean, I feel like I've heard some of this from the Emerging Professional Summit I went to not long ago. And then I used to teach in a high school discovery program for architecture students in Kentucky. So I spent a little bit of time learning about what high school guidance counselors were saying to students who are interested in, in architecture. And the theme common across both those two realms that I worked in was that high school guidance counselors don't know anything about architectural education. And frankly, the architecture education path is so confusing and there are so many variables that they couldn't explain it even if they tried. I mean, you know, some schools have a BS architecture, some have a B architecture, some have a BA architecture, some have an MR1 or an MR2 or an MR3. Like, it's so confusing. And every state is different and every university, it seems, is different. So I do kind of, you know, in a way I kind of could sympathize with a student just saying, well, this is confusing. I'll just, you know, go get a business degree or a civil engineering degree or whatever, because the architecture path is so convoluted right now. Definitely. That seems to be a, a problem that's affecting a lot of schools. Interesting. I'm wondering, because I do think, Ken, as you said, I actually think several colleges are changing to be a, a school of design rather than a school of architecture. And again, with this talk I'm giving and talking about the NCARB's future title task force and the notion that an architecture registration in 10 or 15 years might be something very different from what it is today. I just, I think it's, yeah, we're in an interesting time of change. Although the big umbrella hanging over this, or cloud maybe hanging over this whole discussion is that I've heard many people today, just today, say, well, there aren't enough architects. We can't find anyone to hire. People are getting signing bonuses. Is people, you know, there's there's a rush for hiring architects right now. Uh, yeah. Where will we be in 20 years? You know, there's something that came up in the podcast a while ago when I was mentioning the fact that there's this huge number of, of job openings available. And I think, Ken, you were the one that posed the question of, you know, is it the level of architect that's in demand or is it architects in general? And I visited the uh, AECOM LA office last week and it was really interesting. The architecture department there consisted of basically two age groups, young architects that were pretty, pretty new out of school that had, you know, all kinds of exciting new skills and older architects that offered a lot of experience 
to the firm. And I think that there is a lack of demand for that mid-career architect that doesn't have the new skills and doesn't have as much experience as, as the uh, the more experienced architects. So, you know, that might be a reality right now regarding the lack of or the, the abundance of jobs and, and people are still looking for work. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, to my point before, and I don't want to belabor it too much. I think what when I went to NJIT, if you didn't want to be an architect, traditionally at NJIT, you were already matriculated into NJIT. So if you didn't want to stay in the architecture program, you typically either would transfer to another school, but more often than not, you would transfer into the engineering program. So now what happens is at NJIT is that you have a full range of design disciplines outside of architecture that exist in the school of, in, in the College of Design. So if you didn't fit, if you were a square peg in a round hole at, at the School of Architecture, I think you can now shift to any of these other design-related programs and still be at NJIT. So maybe it was a way of capturing and not losing students to other programs in the College of Engineering or even to other colleges in the state and still hold, retain the student, keep the student in the seat. That's what's so interesting about these College of Design programs is that, is that cause for an issue when it comes to graduating architects? Because, you know, they maybe have... Uh, Maybe they have a more an ADD or ADHD thing, lack of focus in, in staying within the architecture program. So they go into a design discipline and therefore they're not graduating a lot of design architects anymore. So that the profession's not seeing any graduates coming out anymore. And so no, I don't know if anyone's actually a question whether or not the design colleges are the best thing for architecture schools. Yeah, I can speak slightly personally on that subject of whether the design school is better. Well, not because I myself am an architect, but I used to work at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. And they offered a BARC program five years. And if you were coming in as a high school student and you knew you wanted to pursue architecture, you kind of did have um, time, even though it was a pretty strict five-year schedule, to kind of amble around, see what the options were, take courses that might not directly contribute to your architectural training, but we're still very close by both physically and theoretically to that discipline. So I, I kind of am hesitant to say that the any combining or any like um, mixing of architecture programs with other design programs is automatically going to water it down, which I believe is a pretty, is, is can be a very strong case in certain schools. I know that there was um, a recent issue, I believe we posted to the news a while back um, at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, that they were proposing a merger with the architecture school and the arts school. And, and people were just, com architecture college was completely up in arms about that for good, for good reason, because they feared that it might detract resources and that there's like a whole other budget concern with things like that. But it's, yeah, it's certainly a really difficult issue to tackle because I don't know, I, no one in my high school knew <laughs> what architecture education actually meant. And the administration of my school certainly didn't try to alleviate that at all. So we've got far more to go, but um, I think we should move on and get into the news. We've got a little bit of news discussion today before we focus on our, our main act. But something that came up in the news recently is Lucas, George Lucas, in the news for something other than the Narrative Arts Museum. There was a big plot of land that Lucas owned, I believe purchased a couple of years ago in order to expand his um, production company, Lucasfilm. It has their offices out where George Lucas also lives in Marin County. And he owns this huge swath of land that a couple of years ago he was trying to expand his production company onto and the community fought it back. They did not want more Lucas territory or more, more Lucas buildings out there. And he's now considering selling that land off to a developer explicitly to produce affordable housing 
in that area. And so, first of all, I think this deserves some just basic background of where Marin County is, <laughs> in case you don't already know, it's in the Bay, please, yes, in the Bay Area. And it's an extremely wealthy uh, county. And I believe, you know, affordable, what qualifies as affordable housing in Marin County is slightly different than what might, certainly different from what qualifies as affordable housing in um, San Francisco or other major, um, other metropolitan areas nearby. And so in this case, um, the article we posted to the news is routed from the Washington Post, and they refer to the median household income in Marin at around approximately 91000 a year. And so in order for you to qualify for affordable housing, you just have to make under 80% of that. So in a way, that's like, oh, great, like so many people are going to qualify. Whether they actually then need it is another question. And I'm I'm not very familiar with what the housing opportunities are otherwise in, in Marin, but it is just from my own anecdotal experience. It's a beautiful, quite very focused on retaining this kind of sleepy quality. That's totally anecdotal. I'm not, you know, trying to speak specifically, but it's not a place where you're going to see a booming development run that suddenly developers are all going to rush in there and start creating more affordable housing as far as I know. So it's a really interesting scenario where we have Lucas, who's just so fed up with the rest of Marin kind of fighting him on building his own property there, inadvertently inciting what the Washington Post refers to as a kind of class warfare (laughs) by allowing people or specifically sponsoring affordable housing in the area. So this is just a really fascinating instance of how affordable housing, not only of how people think of affordable housing in California, but also reactions to what is effectively like a what I think of Lucas in this scenario is almost like the the king of of the land. He's like own, owner of this fiefdom or something. And he's like delving out this, this plot of land for people to develop affordable housing on. So how did this news piece, how did you guys find it? Did you think it was kind of icky that this, it comes down to this <laughs> affordable housing at under 90k a year? I'll just say this. It's, it's certainly not unique to California, not unique to Marin County and our Marin. This idea is um, I've dealt with the same issue here in Minneapolis in my neighborhood, where where uh, primarily my neighborhood, my community is a bunch of hippies. So you would think they'd be all on board for turning an old school that was just sitting vacant into what they effectively call is workforce housing. And it's coded language, deliberately so, to kind of draw attention away from the idea that people who are going to be living in these affordable housing are recent graduates, single paycheck people starting out in their career, early career, and all the people in the community could see was, we're going to get Somalis and Mexicans, we're going to get a bunch of kids living on this street, we're going to get poor people, we're going to get drug addicts, same stuff that's in this, but there was a need for it. And it's fascinating to, uh, I think the poverty line is something like 7.7% of the county residents live below the poverty line, so it's not like you're going to attract a whole lot of people. But um, I'm on affordable housing, especially in these areas where there are still people being, there are still people there that serve these people who live in those communities that don't make the money to live in those communities. And they, why should they be put aside and have to live in communities that don't look this beautiful? because of a bunch of white people. And to have to travel to them. That's the thing that drives me crazy is that if you have to live 50 miles away because that's the closest place you can afford a house, that just, it makes your quality of life as someone who's making a, even a middle class income, really challenging, really difficult. Uh, You know, I would say one of the best things about Philadelphia, where I lived for 10 years, downtown Philadelphia, is you could, you could literally have a block that was half a million up to a million dollar homes. And the next block over was blue collar 
you know, families raising their their kids. And that mixing, that true diversity and mixing of income levels is one of the things that made the city so interesting and fun and vibrant. Now, obviously, Marin County is not a city, but still, I think that that saying, okay, the people that work, that come here to work and to provide the kinds of services that you want to have, even when you're living somewhere in the beautiful landscape, you know, place to shop, place to go to eat dinner and have a waiter take your food away. You know, you, you don't want those people to have to drive 50, 60, 75, whatever, 100 miles to get to work every day. Now, if the Hyperloop happens, and that, <laughs> that might change things. But given where we are right now, I mean, I think this whole story is really interesting because of the sort of George Lucas saying, you know, screw it. It's my land. I'm going to do what I want to do with it. And and part of it was that he was going to be working with, I believe, a development com- company. And now he's just decided he's going to do it on his own. Yeah, I want to see how and if this affects any of the housing crisis in San Francisco. I mean, recently we had this kind of strange proposal or it wasn't even a seem it didn't even seem like an official proposal, but it was just something kind of thrown out by the mayor of Oakland saying, just build your affordable housing in Oakland for San Francisco. It's basically the same. And there, of course, is like that's a very strange proposal, given that affordable housing is supposed to service its local community for the source of allowing that type of diversity that you're talking about, Donna, and also access to jobs. It's if you locate it just where the land is cheapest, but not where the jobs are, it kind of defeats the purpose. Certainly the land is not cheapest in Marin, but whether, like you say, Donna, like you bring up, whether the people who actually work for Lucas now have a more affordable option to live very close to where they work, whether that's a possibility or um, an effect of this venture, or whether people in San Francisco start imagining what it might be like to instead live in Marin and and take the bridge every day back into San Francisco. (laughs) I I mean, I know people who do that already just because they found something that works for them. So it's very, it's very tentative. And it's just something that no matter how, how much I'm in support of Lucas doing something like this, and I, I think it's a pretty cool gesture. I think that it's a little bit strange if we start relying on people in Lucas's tax bracket to fund affordable housing. It's like, that's a really, especially because it will be on not only land that he owns, but I believe the article also mentions that he's able to set aside places or um, residences for specific roles or specific um, occupations. So whether those occupations might favor his industry is another thing. It's so it's, it's sticky. It's super sticky. It becomes like a company town, right? Exactly. Like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't have a librarian. So let's not librarian get a mortgage at this house and then we'll have one. Right. It, it is a little, and I think all of the tech companies we've talked about with building their new headquarters, this is, this underlies the discussion, certainly that, you know, if you want people to be near work and, and able to devote themselves to their job more than just eight hours a day, that maybe it, it does turn a little bit into a sort of a company town. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, I, it might sound a little bit off topic, but it, I think that it's connected. I think part of the problem, again, it goes back to what is our expectation as a community when it comes to consistently fighting against increasing our property taxes to pay for the things that we need to pay for it in order to take care of the people that we have that live in our community that don't have, have these means. So one of the things that happened here in, in Minneapolis is that there was a fundraiser for a public school to buy a piece of kitchen equipment. And I'm like, but isn't that what my taxes are supposed to pay for? And if we're going to have fundraisers, and effectively this is a fundraiser to kind of pay for the things that we should be paying for as a community, as a responsible and a community that's supposed to care about one another, then we should pony up the taxes to kind of build a transit system that effectively gets people to work 
in a way. I mean, this bucolic photograph of of the Skywalker Ranch on this on this Washington Post piece is interesting because I'm like, is that that's my sense of Marin County? Is do just people live have homes there? There's no gas stations. There's no targets in Marin County. There's no. I mean, people work in those things that don't live in the homes in Marin County, so they have to go somewhere. And like Donna said, if they have to travel, if they have to get on a bus and spend two hours on a bus to get to a place to service a bunch of people, it's just irritating that. You you know, the, the solution is pretty obvious. Increase your property taxes, pay for the services in order to take care of the community that you have, and then you won't get stuck with the community you don't want. And then, you know, you won't have Luke Skywalker's dad <laughs> building affordable housing in places where you don't want it. Are you inadvertently comparing Darth Vader to George Lucas? <laughs> Well, I mean, well, Dar- don't forget, Darth Vader at the end is a good guy. <laughs> but right. you guys, you guys have to remember that Marin County is also the home of Frank Lloyd Wright's Marin County Civic Center, which does look a little Star Warsy. True, it sure does. <laughs> so We've seen Gattaca. <laughs> George Lucas said, "I'm not trying to be the evil empire here." You know, I think the uh, the Star Wars jokes obviously write themselves. I just wanted to one last comment point out that when I first moved to Philadelphia, which is now almost 20 years ago, we were very much this place where not many people, I mean, a lot of people live downtown, but most of the jobs, especially middle-class jobs, were out in the ring counties, right? They were out in the office parks and the the targets and the, you know, the big, the places. So we had this big reverse commute in Philadelphia of people going out of the city every morning to get to their job out in a, in a far-flung county. And it definitely now, 20 years later, we, I think we're seeing all over the country, this reverse the, again, of the commute going back to being more, there are more jobs, more service jobs downtown, more white collar jobs downtown. And so the mass movement every day of people is going back to to getting into the city. And I think that this is all changing in, again, across the country and that sort of the standard, what we would think of as the traditional relationship of suburbs to city is just not going to really be working or, or not going to be the same as we sort of traditionally think of it. So I feel like there are a lot of people and Lucas now sounds like one of them that are saying these mixed, diverse communities with different income levels all living together is is the more interesting and the more beneficial way. And it's starting to happen. Well, for anyone that wants to see what happens to a city when you push the uh, lower income out of the city center, they should go to Lima. I mean, it is, it's crazy, actually. The city of Lima seems like, I mean, I know I talked about Lima a lot in the last last episode, but it's it's incredible the transition between the city center and the literally the slums that that just border the city on on all edges except for the ocean of course but even the the taxis have to change because the taxis don't even fit outside of the city center because the streets are so horrible and small that you know wow. you have to you have to get out of a regular car and get into one of these moto taxis which is a motorcycle with a bench in the back and that's where everybody that you know all of the lower income population of Lima that that's where they all live they all come into the city from from these really hard to imagine environments. Anyways, to talk more about that, we have a conversation that I had while in Lima a couple of weeks ago with my good friend and extremely talented architect, Sebastian Bravo. Sebastian talks about studying architecture in Lima during the uh, time of terrorism, which was a really interesting time when, I mean, it's hard enough to be an architecture student these days in a, in a good and relatively good economy, political stability. But back then they were literally studying the art of building while tanks were driving past them and terrorists were trying to, you know, destroy and pretty successful in taking down the majority of the city. So that was an interesting story. He talked about his, uh, 
starting a career as that terrorism was ending. He talked a little bit about starting up a furniture store, failing at it, but learning so much and applying that to his to his architecture practice. And he also uh, shared a little very exciting story about recently starting a Pisco company, which he has achieved an incredible amount of success in and and how his experience as an architect has really helped him find success in that in that business. So you guys ready to listen to that? Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So what originally attracted you to architecture? I feel that I've always been in some way oriented to become an architect and to do architecture because I've been around it since I was a child. Both my parents are architects. I grew up in a time in which construction and architecture industry here was virtually unexistent. So um, I was near projects and my father used to have architectural projects while I was a small child. But at some point he ended up with no work because of the political and economical situation that the country was passing around the beginning of the 80s. I remember my uncles or, or, or so asking me about what I was thinking of being. I, I really didn't have a very clear idea about that at that time, but my parents were always answering before I did. And they always said, whatever he wants, but an architect, because they felt that there was no future for architects here. And at that time, in some way, it was like that. I mean, there were architects dedicated to very, very different things. One thing I understood at that time was that architecture in some way it was something that would open you a wide variety of possibilities of what you could do with your career. In terms of specific specializations inside the career or different things. I mean, how would you apply the, the knowledge and the formation and the, the studies of architecture to other kinds of jobs? And I, I felt, I don't know, connected to that possibility, no? So I think that's what made it. Um, when I first chose a career, I thought of mechanical engineering. I really liked maths and physics and stuff like that, that kind of studies. And I thought that was a good option for me. I really didn't like it. I felt it was not for me at the first year. Did you begin studying that right out of high school? Yeah, exactly. At what school? UNI, National Engineering University would be in Spanish. And, uh, well, I, I moved to this university to study architecture because I felt I needed to try it because it was something I felt connected to and I felt I could do it well. And I really liked it from the first day I was there, really. I felt like, oh, okay, so this is, this is something which I'm much more interested in. And um, it was at that time, this university used to be the most prestigious one, had the best teachers. It was very, very good. Nowadays, there is a wide offer of particular universities that are offering very, very good standard in architecture careers. And that has driven a lot of the good teachers to the private universities that are much more, have much more budget and possibilities. What are the most prestigious schools of architecture in Lima or in, in the country now? Uh, I think they're all in Lima. I think that between Universidad Católica, the Catholic University, UPC is another university, uh, a scientific, well, well, at least that's the name, Universidad Peruana de Ciencias, have an interesting career too. The more traditional one, uh, Universidad Ricardo Palma, I think it's also prestigious. 
And uh, I know there are new possibilities of, of opening architecture careers in the, um, I'm not sure, you just said Universidad de Piura is one, but there's another one that, um, Universidad de Lima. I don't know very much about that, but it's a good university and uh, they generally have a good standard. So I guess that the, that is going to be another important school in the next years. That one is already um, working. So going back to the beginning of your architecture studies, yes. I imagine, you know, given the political state of uh, Peru at the time with all the terrorism, architecture was not the most promising career choice. So I imagine that you must have just been surrounded with people that were passionate about, about architecture as a, as a study. I think so too, yes. It was a, a very, very complicated time. When I got into university, it was during the last year or or two maybe, in which the terrorism was being beaten to some point by the government. It was Alberto Fujimori that was president at that time. And uh, from the moment that he caught the leader of Shining Path in 92, things really started to change dramatically in terms of the peace process, which is not 100% finished right now, but it's now very specifically located in the coca production area in the Amazon Andes in the oriental part of the country. And um, it's not something that's spread around the country as it used to be at that time. And it's now more related to narco-terrorism, that, that uh, political approach to, to as, as it was at that time. It's, it's basically drug traffic. It's something like what's been happening in Colombia for many years, no? So coming back to university, the school was taken by terrorism. I mean, all the walls were painting with political messages about Sendero, uh, which is a shining path, or about the revolutionary Tupac Amaru movement. It was very, very tense. You had to be very careful in terms of until what time you you stayed in university and uh, where did you go or not, because there was a lot of pressure inside the political community, the, the student community of these groups. So it was a tense time. At some point, Fujimori brought in the army and kept them there for more than a couple of years, I think. To where? Inside the universities. Inside. We had tanks and soldiers, armed people inside university, which was very, very strange also. I mean, uh, as tense as before, because we were just thriving to overcome the situation that, that we had been passing through. It was, a, it was a transition process that was very complicated, passing from terrorism to soldiers, because in this war that had been led for many time, for many years, soldiers had been also seen as uh, they, they had committed lots of abuses. They didn't trust anyone. I mean, they were almost pointing gu guns at classrooms. It was very strange. So the students were just as scared of the soldiers as they... In were. some way. Thank you. That's an easier way to say it, of yeah. course. See. So they weren't necessarily a uh, comforting... Absolutely not. But... At least they were there to keep order, you know. It was a different kind of stress, I guess. But at that time, things really changed a lot. And for the next five years, uh, things went on uh, in a very, very, in a much more normal way. There was still tension and political tension inside the university, but it was much more controlled, I mean, much more moderate. Did you feel that the architectural curriculum in school was affected by the political state? No. Not was, in you this were case. still studying the same. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. 
The curriculum was, I think it was very, very good, very complete, very wide, really. And, and I didn't mention this university before, uh, when I told you the ones that are prestigious, because I was talking about the new one, but this is a very good university still. The thing is that many of the better architects that were at that time doing the important projects around Lima were teachers in there. Because they didn't have any work, I imagine. No, because they had all studied there and they had this connection to their own alma mater that made them do that just out of, how I don't know how to obligation. say this in English. No, yeah, not obligation, but they, they, they were willing to do it as a way of helping because, I mean, what they were receiving as wages was ridiculous i must say it probably paid them for the gasoline to go back and forth they were just doing this for love of love to art passion that's it no and uh and that was the best of all because you had selection of passionate people teaching were there for the right reasons exactly so it was great who were some of the more prominent teachers, architect teachers at the um, school at the time? Look, there were, the one that I had the first uh, atelier lesson was uh, Viktor Smirnov. He's not around us anymore. Pepe Ventin, a very good architect also that's still working and doing important things. He just did the National Stadium remodelation, re regeneration. Eugenio Nicolini, a very, very good and temperamental guy. Eugenio Nicolini was very, very demanding and, and he was a very good architect and a very good teacher, but he had such a character. I mean, everybody who went through his class would say so. But you felt he like you nice learned guy. a lot from him. Oh, yes, yeah. a lot. And more, I don't remember right now, uh, there was a Torres, very good architect too. I, I did not have class with him because he had a car accident and passed away while I was studying. Franco Vela, excellent teacher. He's an architect, he's still working. He did the National Library recently and has several projects uh, from the government and from uh, and particular ones and private ones. And so, I mean, it was a, a nice long list of people that were, you know, in those times, having an architectural office that was really surviving was very important because there were very few that passed those years of crisis on, on the 80s. So I, I could almost say that they were all the important offices were teaching in that school. So it was fantastic. It was a good time. Economically, the country had changed a lot since those guys had studied in that university in those same classes. When they did so, when they did study there, they Lima was a small city to start with. I mean, it had between eight and ten times less population that it does now. And uh, they were all uh, middle class or higher class. So at that time, the profile of the students, when those architects were studying, it was much more regular or consistent. Being a national university, having the political problems that the country used to have, generally the people who chose a national university were people that could not afford a private university. So they, many people were really doing a hard job to send their children to architecture studies because architecture, even if you don't have to pay for the studies themselves because it's a government university, is an expensive career in terms of the materials you need and all this stuff. You used to live in a very democratic way of appreciating 
work. And uh, there was a lot of work that was done on just white, plain styrofoam, worked wonders made out of, of just styrofoam and, and glue, you know. But uh, we were working with very, very little materials in general because that was the way things worked there. Because right now these teachers were teaching to students that were in a totally different situation uh, to the ones they used to study with when they were younger. Everybody used to go in their own cars. I mean, the university was full of parking lots, but there was no cars in it. While you were studying. While I was studying. Because... The profile of the students was totally different. So when did you finish your studies? In 98. 98. So that was after terrorism was finished. The, the oh, city yes, was... for a long time. For six years? Six years, yes. And what was the situation like for a young starting architect in Lima at that time? It was just beginning to become interesting. It was just starting. And you began working for a firm? I worked... Since I was in second year, I had the chance to work in three different studios, architecture studios in Lima. In one of them, I stayed like for five years or, or, or more, maybe, I don't remember exactly, with Eduardo Figari, which is a very well-recognized architect. I had been working since 92 until uh, 2000, maybe, 2002. And then I, I, I left. I needed to go my own way. And uh, I started mm, as a freelance. And when projects, I don't know why, but my way went more through um, furniture design, then some kind of industrial design. And then I got into architecture. I feel that since I was not under the command of, uh, of an architect that had more experience, I needed to do a, another process. But uh, I remember... When I first met you, probably 11 years ago, you had a, a shop down oh, in yes. uh, Barranco, Oh, yes, I right? did. That was beautiful. A nice project. Very, very nice project. And, yeah, you had a lot of your own work there. It was all our work. Mine and Valerie's, my wife, which is my wife and partner, and uh, she's an interior designer and a very, very good, talented interior designer. So at that time, my freelance initiative had grown, and uh, I migrated into converting it into, into a small office, into a small studio, which is what I'm still working now in a modified way, but yeah. as a small firm, Bravo Arquitectos. So 11 years ago, we decided to open a new branch to Bravo Arquitectos, more oriented to interior design and to product design and industrial design in some way, but more as handcraft than industry, really. Taking advantage of the wonderful variety of materials and craftsmanship that you can find here for so many yeah. different things. So it's, it's very easy to produce here. Your work really struck me as uh, the forms were very modern and, and internationally inspired, uh, very contemporary, but utilizing unique local materials and methods. Yes. Like uh, I, I recall the items that you created with tires. That was a very interesting job, really. We were at that time working with tires or reusing or recycling here was not very known. I mean, 
I think most of our potential clients were not prepared for that kind of things. People thought like you're selling trash, you know, and, and you want to charge me for it. And most of all, it's a little bit expensive. I mean, it's not stratospherically expensive, but it's a little bit expensive, you know, because it's made by hand. It's made in it's very small amounts in terms of this small series of products. And there's a whole story behind them. There's people who have different craftsmanships that get into this. And we were trying to use remains of wood production, of wood industry, small pieces of wood. We tried to design furniture that comes out of complete piece of commercial size uh, log that you use 100% of the thing and you make a table out of it, for example. Those kinds of concepts. It was, I mean, the design experience, the learning through all that process was fantastic. The business was terrible. We are designers, but we're not so good at the sales and marketing part. So the shop was a little overwhelming for us in terms of, I mean, we had ideas to produce stuff like hell, but, but no I regrets. think we didn't have the, the right partner to maybe take this to the other side. But no regrets, no? Absolutely no. none. Absolutely none. I'm sure it was beautiful uh, experience. an amazing learning experience as well. That amazing. probably has helped inform your work. Of course. So as an architect now, what are the types of projects that you have been and focusing on the generally last. particular houses private houses and bars and restaurants some stores like boutiques or small stores generally we focus on some kind of tailor-made architecture tailor-made projects when when we do houses we generally work for people that are relatively wealthy this means um, that people that are prepared to buy a house and invest money in it i mean it's a it's a big investment in general. It's an investment that people don't usually do when there's a situation of economical doubt. Mm -hmm. You know, we have now a very dynamic real estate market. Right now, it's a little bit, it's slowed down a bit of, see, it is, but it's been moving and prices have been rising the last years a lot. And people have been speculating on, is this the right or not the right moment? And in this country, unfortunately, we are still in a political situation in which every time there's elections, there's fright from many people because there's the, I don't know. Yeah, the country, I mean, as a, as a visitor, I, I can tell that the political situation is extremely unstable. unstable and unreliable. Everybody's waiting for that next election to make the big decisions. Exactly. Yeah. So you have slow years every 18 months before a presidential election. I mean, things just almost turn off until everybody sees who comes up and what's, what intentions he has. I'm, I'm very rational when, when I design and, and I always think about the budget. But I basically think of finding the point of equilibrium between the expectations the client has and the capabilities that he has. I think that's one of the most important things that one has to calibrate correctly. In these years where there is crisis abroad, for example, let's talk about 2008. We felt it bad here. Things were growing in terms of real estate very fast, but there was a huge slowdown for at least a year, you know, and we felt it right away. So there's no new projects to try and have as much projects as possible to be able to pass over that time. I'm talking about something that's basically managing a small studio in, in, in Lima, which is what I've been doing for several years and living on, on these up and downs, no? Anyway. One thing I always think when I approach a project is that I need to make sure that 
people are happy when they habitate the, the space I design for them, that they have their expectations fulfilled. And as I tell them every first meeting, I want them to remember me with care, not hate, you know, yeah. and not regret having called me, but thinking they made a good decision. I mean, and uh, I, I focus projects like that. I try not to have a style, you know, I try, I try not to sell one aesthetic idea of how things should be. I have my own aesthetic ideas. People that generally hire me have seen some of my work and probably have a connection with my vision of the architectural solution. But um, I try not to put that into a project. I try to put the client's needs and expectations. And if a client comes to me and tells me, you know what, my beach house, I wanted to feel Balinese. I think that's a fantastic challenge. I mean, and, and start working on uh, studying uh, wood structures and developing new ideas. I love doing wood structures. Really, I really enjoy it. There's very few clients that want to do them. They're kind of expensive if you compare them to the our conventional way of constructing, which is concrete and brick, basically. Well, speaking of style, one thing I've always noticed in Lima is that there seems to be generally a much greater appreciation for modernism here than, I mean, the majority of architecture here would be classified as modern and modernist. Are most of your clients looking for that type of modern aesthetic? Yes, which is sad. Yeah. <laughs> See, because boring. there's no variety. Yeah. Oh, yes. Three years ago, everybody would say, oh, I wanted more uh, minimalistic. That was the word. They didn't even know what that meant, but everybody uh -huh. was talking about minimalism. So it's more of a trend. Like 50 years after minimalism was invented. You know, we are a, a country that culturally it's in the process of formation. That's the way I see it. We are a very, very mixed country. We have just passed through a huge migrational movement all around the country from the fields to the cities. I mean, there's something that's very describing of this situation. Lima used to have half a million habitants in the 50s, and now it has 10. 20 times. So in 60 years, it's grown 20 times in the most chaotic way possible. Uh, well, I mean, you go onto any street in Lima and you can see that it has grown at a pace that nobody would it have has expected. It's traditional part, which is a little bit better structured, not very wisely planned in terms of previewing this huge growth. You go to Buenos Aires and you see they really understood the... the possible grow of the city and they really have an infrastructure that's still proportioned. We are short of roads and, and, and transport systems. And are there any plans to improve this horrible congestion that the city has? There are, yeah. but uh, they are very, very long term and uh, they are so politically driven that, for example, what one mayor starts, the next one dismantles and it's crazy. We are experiencing that right now with the new mayor. Not very popular. Well, he got elected. I mean, he's popular, but not to me. But among people I've been talking to here in Lima, nobody no, likes no, him. No, no, nobody likes him. He's, he's a very complicated man. And he's really, I feel he's undoing what was done in the last period with, with no criteria, out of hate, out of political revenge, which is crazy. I mean, but, so, yes, we have a plan, but the future is not so clear, you know. 
there's, there's not one plan that everybody is obliged to follow. No, no, absolutely not. There's many few plans. You know what's a huge urbanistic problem in Lima? Lima has one government that's for the metropolitan whole area, which we can say from south to north has a hundred kilometer. It's a it's a hundred kilometer wow. wide, sixty miles. And in the other way, it's like forty-five or fifty miles. Okay to say it in miles. And uh, there's one government for the whole thing. And then there's 45 or maybe now there are 46 districts inside that have autonomy. So what happens is that connections between districts, interaction between districts does not work. And if one mayor is from one party and the other one is from another party and they don't like each other, I mean, they won't talk to each other. So the road between them, nobody fixes it. It's crazy. But those kinds of things happen everywhere. And that's congestion and congestion. It's crazy. It's a very, very complex situation to fit. And there's a lot of area, the peripheral area, that has grown out of invasions on the desert around the city. Those invasions have no planning. So they have no opportunity of development because they have three meter wide roads and no sidewalks. Or when they finally want to do a sidewalk, the electricity poles are in the middle of it. Or... It's ridiculous. And, and there's no way that is going to evolve to a better city anytime because there's no way to get in transport. And it's huge. It's massive. It's probably 50% of the whole surface of the city. It's this kind of urban structure. Yeah. Okay, so coming back to style. Culturally, after this whole migration, we are uh, an incredible mixture of uh, different cultures because... People that live in the northern Andes don't think and live and operate the same way that people that live in the southern Andes and on the coast, here and there. And there's such a mixture now in the big city that I think that our aesthetics, our real expression, our Peruvian way of, uh, I mean, common way of expressing is still a work in progress. And there is a division. Uh, this is a very polarized country, you might see it. I mean, there's lots of divisions. There's racism, there is uh, classism, there is a lot of problems that tear apart our ability to have a unified function. culture, function, many things. You know? So it's very mixed. And I have the feeling that modernism is like... Um, one of the uh, common denominators mm. in terms of expectations is something that joins us all. Because even if you're going to economic housing in large buildings or you're going to private, just one family houses in nice neighborhoods, modernism is the common word. I don't know if that's a way of, you know, I reject your, your traditional Andean colorful way of seeing things. Or uh, I reject your uptight, super fine classical way of, but through modernism, like everybody's happy. So is it... Everybody relates. Do you consider it like a forward thinking optimism? Yes, we have that, fortunately. See, we do so. I think that as a society, we are getting to understand that uh, we are still to see, we have to wait a little bit to see what we are going to become 
I mean, all uh, economical and uh, money distribution is changing. Racial distribution is changing. We're a very racist country. It's crazy. We have such a mixture. We're so Creole, all of us. We're so mixed. Yeah. <laughs> But still, we reject each other because one is Cholo, one is Negro. And that's not, all, not only color, that's culture, that's taste, that's... Food, that's every, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm wrong. Food unites us. That's what I was just thinking. I mean, food is one of those things in Peru. I mean, the food in Peru, it's one of the best in the world. But it really, I mean, it combines Italian, Japanese, Chinese, local Peruvian. Well, that's because there's also been important migrations during the last centuries in the wars and for other crises in Europe. And there's been a lot of Italian, uh, Japanese, Chinese migrations here, of course. Uh, and that's influenced a lot. But then I think we have this amazing variety of ecosystems that give us such an incredible assortment of products. I mean, if you mix all that complexity of all those kitchens and you add all, I mean, the fruit we have, the vegetables we have, the varieties of potatoes or the seafood, and we, we really enjoy that. And that, it, that unites us. That's the most democratic part. So food and modernism. Probably, Never. yes. That's <laughs> my kind of country. <laughs> I think I just sold a lot of people on Peru. <laughs> so now you've been moving your work into an interesting new direction in the last few years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Of course. Um, I was talking to you before about this instability of, of the of the project situation in my studio I've always lived with it but it's I always felt uh, I needed to do something else and I like to produce I like to to do things I mean I'm really I'm a designer and I love designing and the studio work but I'm more of a hand to to earth man that well I can see that service. in your, we're talking right now in your own house which is just beautiful And I can see your and Valerie's hands everywhere. I mean, it's just everything to the finest little detail is customized. So I was looking for a new business, something interesting, something I would like to do, because that's the first thing for me. I mean, I need to, I need to really love and enjoy what I'm doing. Well, this I, I have started to really be passionate about it. I decided by a very, very, uh, I mean, spontaneous situation, we had the opportunity, me and my father, to... Uh, start this Pisco production business, which is a great uh, new branch of, of uh, work. So before we get into that, Pisco is starting to gain a lot of popularity in the U.S., but still a lot of people don't know what Pisco is. Pisco is, you know, a staple here in Peru and in Chile. Right. Uh, I don't know other if other South American countries. No, just Chile and Peru. So uh, what is Pisco? Okay, Pisco, it's a distilled uh, spirit that's generally um, distilled at around 40 or 42 uh, volume of alcohol. I mean, it's a strong spirit, very, very nice one that is made out of grapes. And it's made out in such a way that it, the whole uh, goal of producing pisco is extracting the most aromas and characteristics as possible from the grape and from the soil and from the climate and from the year, you know. Uh, it, it's different to many other uh, spirits made out of grape because this one here is distilled in such a way that it takes with it a lot of the taste and sweetness and smells of the fruit. 
So we are very, very passionate about Pisco as Peruvians. And uh, it's kind of sad, but I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> the reason why we're very passionate of, of this is because Chile, many years ago, took the Pisco name and started selling it abroad. Pisco is a city in the south of Lima, 230 kilometers south from Lima. And Pisco is Peruvian. It's always been Peruvian. And the thing is that the country that presented it to the world was Chile. And we have this chauvinistic kind of stupid feeling that they stole the Pisco from us. It's like if in the Champagne region, they never registered Champagne. And then someone in Italy, in Milan, decided to name a village Champagne. So, so he could sell this product that was not really from there. That's exactly what they did. So anyway. So there's a lot of national pride. There's this national pride thing around Pisco that I don't buy very much but it's a beautiful product it's a delicious product it's a very very good quality alcohol it's an extremely complex spirit full of differences between the grapes and the ways it's produced and i mean it's the interesting thing about pisco because ma mainly when when you take spirits when you drink spirits like vodka or, or to speak about spirit spirits made out of grape the orujo the spanish orujo the italian grappa the French eau de vie, they're very neutral. They're very similar one to the other because they're very, what you say, rectified in the distillation process. The pisco is not neutral at all. The pisco is an expression of the grape. It's an expression of where the grape was harvested, how it was treated through the process. I mean, it's, it's very sensible to that. And it's a much more complex spirit in terms of taste and smell. So anyway, we decided to start producing pisco. There was a good chance in Ica. Ica is a city, uh, to say it in miles, maybe 170, 180 miles south from Lima. It's the, like the heart of the Pisco industry, it's the place where the, the largest amount of grapes and distilleries in the country. And uh, my father used to have a connection with a person that provided him with good grapes and a, a connection with the distillery, which he used to, to hire to elaborate very, very small batches of wine. He just tagged with his name and, and uh, had it for him and to give out to friends as a hobby. He really entertained himself once every year, producing between 200 and 300 bottles of wine. Sometimes it came out nice enough, sometimes not. I mean, this is not a wine region. Peru is not a wine region. It's not easy to make wine here. So the grapes are better for Pisco here? Much better for Pisco. So one day driving to Ica, going with him just out of curiosity to get to know what he was doing, because I thought it was really cool. I was asking him about this, and, and then he said, oh, I, I, I really wanted to make some Pisco, but this distillery won't accept 200 kilos of grapes for Pisco. They, they make me bring in seven tons. That's no hobby. You need seven kilograms of grape to make one liter of Pisco. This is why the distillery will ask you for seven tons because it would make the, the, the least thousand liters you have to produce. And uh, so we did. We, we decided to go for it. Finally, we ended up doing 2,000 because we bought more grape. I mean, we could fill the truck and we did. And we had a very, very good production. Our Pisco came out excellent, really. After a year of resting, um, we presented it to the national contest and it won every gold medal it could win. It, it won a regional gold medal for ICA, it won a national gold medal, and it won the great gold medal or grand gold medal, I don't know what they call it. It was just two piscos that achieved that great gold, whatever, amongst almost 
300 samples. So that was some deal. I mean, you can have many gold medals because it's a matter of points. You achieve a certain level of points, up to 30% of the participants of the samples can get medals. So getting a gold medal is good, but it's not so good as getting a grand gold medal. So you know your PISCO was good, but were you expecting that type of No, uh, th that was a, there's a, an important dose of luck in this whole thing, you know. We knew we were working with a very good distillery. But we didn't, we were not so sure that the grape we were buying was so good. I mean, the guy that sold the grape for us, that found the grape for us, did a very good job. Because as I was telling you, Pisco is the spirit of, of the grape. It's the taste and the characteristics of the grape in a spirit. And um, if you start with a bad grape, there's no way you can make wonders out of it. I mean, you can make a disaster out of fantastic grape, but you cannot make wonders. If your grape is not ripe enough, not well managed, you know. So we were there learning. I mean, this, this distillery is a school distillery. You hire them to produce for you and you have the obligation to learn to do so. It's very interesting. It's a, it's a government initiative and they have very, very high standards of, of production, probably the highest in ICA or one of the highest in ICA. So the whole difference between my Pisco and the other producer of Pisco that goes to the same distillery that I do is the quality of the grapes I bring in. That's the whole thing. So that was a bit of luck because I could not say this grape is good or not when I was buying it. I must say so, no? I was starting on this. You know, we were, let's see what happens. That was the whole thing. Once we made it, once, you know, it rests for a year, but of course you try it, you, you offer it to people to give you opinions. So we were getting so good opinions. I was saying, no, you, know, you know what? We have to take this seriously. The next year, before even presenting this one into the contest, we produced not 2,000, but 12,000 of liters of pisco. I mean, we, as we say here, we jumped into the pool. Uh, so it was an, an interesting bet. <laughs> and they came out so good also that we are very, very happy. I mean, and, and now two years later, we've learned so much about pisco, about grapes. We are studying as much as we can. And uh, we've constructed and improved our relationships with the people that provide the grapes for us. And so our whole concept is small batches of selections of fields, specific fields, grapes, uh, not mixed with others in numbered bottles in very, very... You know what? There's, there's something that I think is important to explain is that every time you produce a small batch, you have the ability to control higher qualities. If you produce large batches, quality is necessarily coming down. And the reason is that you cannot have same quality grapes from huge areas or different areas or different fields there's no way that you're going to get a good selection because time won't allow you to do so in terms of you need in, industrially you need to harvest and process everything at the same time one moment and you cannot select all oh, this group we're going to work with it tomorrow or what so that's what we are trying to do just find small selections of the best grape we're able to find and process it and present it every year like this. Pisco, as wine, changes every year. Vodka and whiskey are always the same. They have a produ production method that assures you that every year they come out. Pisco producers here make a huge mistake. They try their Pisco to be the same every year. The only way you can achieve that is forcing things. So what we're doing is the opposite. We're presenting you 
varieties. What we find good a certain year in terms of good quality grapes, this year I have found a field that's been kept very well. We're always dealing with small producers. I mean, they're not very stable, so we have to work with them nearly and, and uh, have a look on what they're doing, how they're managing the grapes over the whole year to be sure that we are going to buy them. Um, and that's what we're doing and selecting different batches of grape and presenting them as this year from this specific location, this amount of grape, this amount of pisco bottled in such many bottles of this size and this size and this size and this size. And you have all numbered bottles and no nonsense in that way because we are, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but we are a very informal country. And there's so many people doing things wrong around Pisco that we really need to make a change because there's many people that win a medal one year and the next year they buy whatever Pisco, they bottle it, they put stick a medal on it and sell it out. They're just going to take advantage of that previous and award. that's it, you know, which, because you, you, can, you can use your award for 10 years, which is crazy. I mean, you should use your award for the lot. What's the year of the medal and what's the year of the one you're buying? Generally, they're not the same. I mean, the lot that wins a medal generally flies. And then it's just bottles of lots of the same brand of a, of a wine that won a medal, but did not win it this year, because it, if it would have, it would be stuck on the bottle, of course. And it would probably be sold out. And it probably be sold out. So we're never buying metal products. We're not doing that. Yeah. We're only offering what has a metal goes with a metal, what doesn't, doesn't. We're making a professional tasting of our products. And if they don't punctuate to gold medals, we're not sending them out. You know, there's a rational way to taste. Of course, there's, there's a subjective side to it, but there's a systematic uh, international way to point uh, these products. So we unite a group of professional tasters and uh, they evaluate. And if we see that the points of our piscos are high, we present them, not if not. That's our proposal. And we'll never do a good pisco and a cheap Pisco. Never. Which is also widely spread. I mean, it's it's the way industry works. They have a small amount of good Pisco that makes you the branding and then a huge amount of disgraceful product. That's the one many people use for Pisco sours and stuff and, and it's no good. No? So that's so we are fresh blood in an old industry full of traditions and very, very hermetic. But uh, I think that my goal is to make things change a little bit. Do you feel like your experience in architecture and design has contributed to your success as a yes. maker of Pisco? Definitely. I spoke to Carmen Garrobo. She's the director of the uh, tasting professional tasting school of Madrid. She used to be here giving out some some lessons, very interesting ones. And I was talking about this whole concept, and 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 she ended up and I told her I was an architect and this. <laughs> And at the end, she said, I know what your product should be named. It's Pisco de Diseño. It's Design Pisco. <laughs> so, um, yes. As you know, I've designed the brand itself because once every while. And the name of the Pisco. We have and the name and everything. What is yes. it? Paca Paca. Paca Paca. Paca Paca. P-E. Yes. Paca Paca. P-E. It's P-A-C-A. P-A-C-A. Dot P-E. I looked up the website yesterday. I noticed you need to put in www before... Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, I don't know how Just to Just for, for those of the listeners that want to take a look. Thank you for that. Anyway, 
Yes, I designed the brand, the name, the packaging. All that's related to, to my product design experience and, and all. I've done a lot of work through my studio on retail design. Not anymore, because it's changed a lot. I mean, competition is huge now. There are prices have dropped crazy way. There's businesses that sell all the merchandising products and all the point of sale branding objects and they're and they're practically giving away design so it's not a business anymore but uh, I think all that experience has been very important and also to the definition of the concept of what are we going to offer to the market in terms of differentiation of our product which is clearly differentiated for from what's happening now and this is why I trust things are going to change because we produced a, a, an important surprise. I mean, nobody knew us in the industry. We were absolutely new. And standing there, receiving this huge medal and stuff there, people were wondering, what are they, who are these guys and what are they doing there? And what is Paka Paka and what's going on here? No? So there's been a lot of talking about that. And we're, we've, that was a magnificent jumpstart for us because, I mean, many people have caught interested on Paka Paka because of that. I mean, if not, it would be very difficult to have it, make it known, well known. So we're making a difference because we're representing Pisco in a way nobody is. And the way that you feel it needs it should, to be. It needs to be made, you know. And uh, if you see our label on the backside of the bottle, you have a very, very specific detail of how it's been produced, when it was harvested, what was the condition of the grape at the point of the harvest, how many days it fermented, at what temperature, how much pisco came out of the distillation process, uh, how it's distributed in lots. I mean, we say things generally are the secrets of, and they're no secret. I mean, if you read a little bit about pisco, you'll get to know that all those factors affect the final result. So we're trying to develop a brand that's felt uh, like teaches you about pisco, that's felt as a brand for, for connoisseurs, but at the same time, it's a brand that's open to everybody because it's, it's transparent. I mean, it gives you exactly what it says. And, uh, and uh, I think that this whole strategic approach to the product uh, has a lot to do with architectural experience, the previous architectural experience. I can see a lot of similarities in the process of creating yes. good Pisco and the process of creating good architecture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. Uh, and that's returning to the beginning of our conversation. One of these uh, demonstrations that really you can start as an architect and end up as a Pisco producer. I don't know. I don't want to stop doing architecture. Not at all. I mean, I don't mean to do that. Absolutely. But I mean to keep on doing the best Pisco possible. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story. Thanks to you. I think it's time to drink some Pisco. Okay, perfect. All right. So that was my conversation with Sebastian. As I mentioned before the interview, he actually doesn't have a website for his practice, but he does have a profile on Arconnect that you can check out some of his work, his you should check out his Pisco. I, I don't know if they're if they're exporting it out of the country. They're a new company, so I'm not sure if they've even got that kind of stuff figured out yet. But if you are in Lima, I definitely recommend picking up a bottle. It's really the best Pisco out there. It's pacapaca.pe. We'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Did you bring any back with you, Paul? I did. I did. It's sitting proudly right next to a fine bottle of bourbon that we received a few months ago from a lovely person. The, uh, the Arconnect office has the requisite booze, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, not enough booze drinking, but the the uh, the liquor cabinet is growing. Well, work does have to get done. It does. So you can't always be drinking. Yeah, but you know, 
all work and no play. <laughs> Got to have that that balance. You do, you do. So anybody have any endorsements this week? So I just wanted to mention the new Whitney Museum, which there's a, a nice discussion in the forums about the new Whitney Museum. And it's actually a pretty good discussion about the building. I think most people are a little reserved about their opinions of the building so far, which is actually kind of nice to see because it seems like a building that's going to un- reveal itself to us over time. But I'm also just intrigued that all of a sudden it seems like this weekend, boom, like dandelions, there were reviews of the building everywhere. Michael Kimmelman wrote a really nice one. There's one in the Wall Street Journal. There were two on Vulture, I think, that the Jerry Saltz five-part review is fantastic and really goes into a lot of questions about the state of the art world. So it's Renzo Piano, Piano, I guess is how you pronounce it. The Kimmelman review had some really nice sort of fly-throughs of the building talking about how it relates to the street. I'm curious to see more discussion on this building and as some architectors or people out there in New York start going to the building and giving us their comments in the forum, that would be great. I'd love to hear firsthand responses from people. So that that's that would be my endorsement, the Whitney, the new Whitney. That's a good one. We're planning on having a uh, roundup of all the critical response to the building that should be on our connect by the time this podcast airs. So check that out. Excellent. Excellent. So I wanted to point readers towards this bit of material science news that I found pretty fascinating. And I wanted to talk to Donna's dad about it because he's a metallurgist, (laughs) because I think that there's this is something that looks so wacky. And even though there's videos posted, you never I mean, I'm not a metallurgist. I don't know what's going on. But the news post is about these researchers at Tsinghua University in China who have found a particular metal alloy made mostly of gallium um, that can propel itself around when it interacts with aluminum. And that doesn't sound super, (laughs) without giving the video, it's kind of hard to explain exactly how that works because I, in terms of chemical reactions, I'm not sure exactly how that works. But there are some pretty incredible videos of the ability of this metal to move and also reform its initial shape after it's disrupted. It's pretty amazing stuff. And the researchers are convinced that this is going to have vast implications for medical science, in particular, like delivery of pharmaceuticals in the bloodstream to be able to deliver things through metal that can move which is just crazy. So, and the major, the, the even farther more pie in the sky idea is that this could make basically shape-shifting robots. And so every single news piece <laughs> I've seen that is reported on this has used a image of the villain from Terminator 2 in some type of regeneration. Either his head is split down the middle or he's got bullet holes in him. And this is not just, you know, the clickbaity cover to get people in. It's it's what the researchers actually referred to where they're like, yeah, 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 we know. It'll be like that, but not for evil. You know, it, we will, uh, if we do end up making shape-shifting robots we will make sure they're nice which is kind of a hilarious way to round it off but i currently will they people, have buzz cuts that's a good question whatever they do they will have self-modifying buzz cuts so they don't need to worry cool. about so yeah they'll be able to and stay those trendy. cheekbones <laughs> that, that terminator guy had those cheekbones that were you know if you could generate your cheekbones to look like that i i would i would do it i would inject myself with this ah, <laughs> so maybe this has cosmetic industry uh, implications. well they said it has medical like medical medicine delivery mm-hmm. that you could you know put basically a little bot in your bloodstream and it would go and take the medicine to where it needs to go i will say i'm highly skeptical of the video that they showed to me it looked like the blob of metal was moving based on momentum more than Mm. anything else. But I understand that there is science behind this and I'm going to see if I can get my dad to weigh in on it because he's a pretty cutthroat scientist when it comes to to things like this. So I'll I'll see if I can get his opinion on it. Great. But I did love that everyone, everywhere I saw that article, it was, as you said, illustrated with the Terminator. Um, (laughs) And I just love that whenever it seems these days, whenever any kind of scientific 
breakthrough happens, there's always a movie or, you know, uh, there's always a reference to a movie or some kind of pop culture that, oh, the flying cars from the Jetsons. We knew this was going to happen. You know, there's always this pop culture thing to make it palatable to people or to make them engage with it. So I think that's very funny. Oh, we're guilty of that a lot on our connect. Pop culture references, it's the easiest. It, I mean, it gets across to everybody too. Everybody. It does. Exactly. It gets the idea across to everybody. So very funny. Ken, do you have any endorsements this week? Yeah, I was reading and um, reading the article that uh, Nam posted of a uh, Alexandra Lang review of the Corning Museum of Glass uh, by Thomas Pfeiffer and Partners. It's one of these, this building, the Whitney and the, the recent Philomarne, the Jean Nouvel building in Paris have really been very interesting buildings to look at through the photographs because I really don't quite understand everything. And it just makes me want to physically be there in a way that other buildings that I have seen reviews about don't. So this is another one that's particularly interesting. And so I thought it was a very compelling piece of work and a good write-up. Yeah, these museums that I think there's actually a point at which in their publicizing campaigns for these new museums where they are actually trying to be a little bit withholding because it's so easy to, I mean, these museums are incredibly difficult to photograph and give you a representative idea. But I would also not be surprised if we start seeing people who are like press uh, kits devoted to these new buildings where they're kind of not fully showing everything because they want to kind of encourage that mysterious opportunity of like encountering it and not knowing exactly what you're going to get. Of course, and also if it curbs bad reviews, that's also handy. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, well, I'm not going to dispute that, Amelia, that they're very careful about what they put out there to be looked at. But I also want to point out that the Thomas Pfeiffer, the same architect, Ken, who did this this Corning Museum, recently did this courthouse in Salt Lake City. It was on the cover of Architect Magazine, I believe. And one of the critics I follow on Twitter, and I don't remember if it was Kimmelman or, or Ollie Wainwright or who, but somebody said when that article came out on Architect Magazine, boy, I'm really tired of these overexposed photographs that I'm seeing in all the architecture press lately. And suddenly it's like when you hear the term vocal fry, you can't not hear it. Mm. I suddenly, every photograph I look at lately of buildings looks overexposed. And it seems to me, it's like they're trying to make it look more seamless and look more pristine and and perfect. And so, you know, if think about that if, as you look at these photographs of these buildings, like are they overexposed? I, I kind of think a lot of them are, frankly, intentionally. Yeah, that, I've noticed that style has been popping up more and more in architectural photography. Yeah, yeah. It used to be blurry buildings. So remember, there were blur. There was a whole blurry phase of photography <laughs> for a, a while with a blurry person walking through the yeah, kitchen. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. <laughs> now everything's white. It's all just let's just yeah. combine all these trends together into a style. And oh, stick somebody with that. do that. Yeah, somebody do that. Who can do Photoshop? Because I, I don't know how. Paul, do you have any endorsements? I don't. Besides, I just another reminder about the uh, party at the VDL house, Neutra VDL house on uh, May 2nd. The invitations uh, will be announced on the website soon and will be going out soon. But, um, you know, save the date if you're in L.A. or you plan to be in L.A. It's going to be a lot of fun. And that's it for me. And is that is that it for the show? It's been a long one. It has. Yeah. It's a great interview with Sebastian. I'm really glad you got to do that. And it's great to hear a voice from another country, frankly. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it's really nice to hear how architects work in other, in other places and the kind of struggles that they encounter that, you know, is as hard as uh, our jobs can seem here. Some, you know, sometimes hearing yeah. the perspective of somebody who's really battling with something, you know, like political instability, you know, it adds, it adds another perspective on things. So hopefully we can do more of that. It would be nice to to hear from more architects around different parts of the world about how, what the situation's like there. Absolutely. I would love that. 
That'd be great. Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks to everybody for listening to this long episode. Hope you made it to the end. As always, send questions, comments, suggestions to us uh, via email, connect at rconnect.com, Twitter with hashtag rconnect sessions. You can even call us at our call-in number, 213-784-7421. No one is there to answer, but you can leave a message and maybe we'll use it. Maybe we won't, but we'll appreciate it whatever you leave. And that's it for this week. Oh, and rate us on iTunes if you like the podcast. We really appreciate that. And if you have a review to give, we'd love to read that too. So thanks for listening and talk to you guys next week. Talk to you next week. Thanks guys. Bye. Until next week. Bye-bye. Bye.